Let me invite you now to take your Bibles and let's transition into hearing the word of the Lord. We're going to start in Genesis 27. So if you turn to Genesis 27, we're going to be working through this full section again of Genesis that we are simply calling dysfunctional. Dysfunctional practices that do not fulfill the purpose for which God has created us to be in relationship. And we are going to look at the fourth one this morning. So far, we've seen the dysfunctional practice of favoritism because when we play favorites, we don't reflect the love of God. God loves all, whosoever will may come. For God to love the world that whoever would believe. And so the practical application of loving as God loves is in three words we've talked about. I want to bring them back to your thinking. Invitation, hospitality, and service. That we would invite people not just like us, but people who are unlike us. Because that's who God invites. That we would be hospitable to strangers. We would not stay in our groups with the people we already know, but we would reach out to the strangers so that they wouldn't remain a stranger and that we would serve, not just people who can serve us, but we would serve because we love and serve a God who said, I didn't didn't come to be served, but to serve, to give my life as a ransom for many. So, No place for favoritism in the church. Also, the dysfunctional practice of foolish trades. That is simply saying, in this life where God says he is of greatest worth and his truth is of greatest worth, when we make trades that we give up the presence of God, the person of God, the truth of God for things of lesser value, that's a foolish foolish trade. It's what Israel did. It says they exchanged a living fountain for broken cisterns that can hold no water. Only God is the living fountain. So whenever we trade the presence of God, the truth of God for something that won't hold water, that's a foolish trade. Last week, we talked about the dysfunctional practice of deceit, of living lies, not just speaking lies, but living lies, and that he is the truth, and as the people of God, we are to walk in truth, and when we don't walk in truth, when we speak lies and live lies, then we have to speak and live more lies to cover the previous lies. And the only way you and I are going to untangle ourselves from that web of lies is to say, I'm going to humbly, courageously, and by faith step out of the darkness into the light, believing that light will not bring shame. That's what darkness brings. Light won't bring shame. Light will bring Anybody remember? Forgiveness, confession will bring cleansing and what? Authentic fellowship with one another. See, as long as we live lies, we can't really fellowship with one another. So hopefully, in the past week, some of you took humble, courageous, faith steps 
out of darkness into the light, in other words, of living, speaking truth. All right, so that's what we've looked at thus far. Uh, This morning, the dysfunctional practice of revenge. Dysfunctional practice of revenge. And we're going to see, again, four quick practices demonstrated in real life in the book of Genesis, and then ask ourselves this question. Why is it dysfunctional, and how do we turn something dysfunctional into something profoundly functional? So in Genesis 27, we have the first example of this dysfunctional practice where it says in verse 41, Esau, remember the older brother of Jacob, son of Isaac, bore a grudge against his brother Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed Jacob. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near, then I will do what? Then I'm going to kill my brother. See, what we're going to see in Genesis is this reality. That there's this practice that simply says, because my brother did what he did to me, I will repay. And it almost always involves a sword. I'm going to get him. I'm going to kill him. I'm not going to kill him yet because the days of mourning for dad are still. But I'm going to one day take my sword out. And I am going to take my brother's life for what he did to me. Well, Esau not only wanted to kill Jacob for stealing the blessing, his uncle Laban wanted to kill him as well, but for a completely different reason. If you go from Genesis 27 to a couple chapters later, Genesis 31... Laban grabs his swords, and a bunch of guys grab their swords. Here's why. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, then he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him a distance of seven days' journey, and he overtook him in the hill country of Gilead. So he chased him for a week to exact some revenge on him. Laban said to Jacob, once he called up to him, what have you done by deceiving me and carrying away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and deceive me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with joy and with songs, with the timbrel and with lyre? And did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters. Now you have done foolishly and I have caught you to make you to make you pay. But watch. It's in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to speak either good or bad to Jacob. And so Laban fully intended to harm Jacob for what he had done. And not just him, he had grabbed a group of guys and they chased him for a week to make him pay. And he only didn't because God said, careful, don't do that. Go from Genesis 31 to Genesis 34. One of the (laughs) uh, more unusual chapters in the Bible is what you might call Genesis 34. So here's the situation. Genesis 34 begins like this, verse 2. When Shechem, 
The son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her. Look up here for a moment. Her is the sister of Jacob's son, so Jacob's daughter. Her name is Dinah. When Shechem saw Dinah, he took her and lay with her by force. What would we call that? Okay, he raped her. It says down in verse 7, Now the sons of Jacob come in from the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved, and they were very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing ought not to be done. But Hamor, who is Shechem's dad, the rapist's dad, says, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him in marriage. Intermarry with us. Give your daughters to us and, and take our daughters for yourselves. But they say to him in verse 14, we can't do that. To give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, that'd be a disgrace to us. So they offer this, verse 15. Only on this condition will we consent to you to the intermarry, to give our daughters to you. If you will become like us and that every male of you be circumcised. And Hamor and Shechem convince all the men of the city, this will be good. It's a small temporary price to pay for what will benefit us for a long time. And all the men of the city agree to be and are circumcised to what end drop down to verse 25 now it came about on the third day when they were in pain because of the circumcision (laughs) that two of Jacob's sons Simeon and Levi Dinah's brothers each took his sword and came upon the city unawares and killed every male How could, how could two guys kill every male? Because <laughs> they couldn't fight. Because they had agreed to be circumcised. So it was, it was all a setup to exact what? Revenge. All the men die. They kill them for raping their sister. And then finally... Chapter 37, we have the sons of Jacob. More than just Simeon and Levi from the previous 34. When they saw him, Joseph, that is, their younger brother from a distance, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. So the sons of Jacob intended to kill their brother, because of his God-given dreams. They change their plan at the last minute and don't kill him. They throw him into a pit and then ultimately sell him into slavery instead of exacting revenge with a quick death. A lifelong of slavery versus a quick death. So as you look at these, what I want you to recognize is this. Look up here for a moment. Esau wanted revenge because his brother had stolen from him. Laban wanted revenge because his son-in-law had run off and dishonored him. 
Jacob's sons wanted revenge for their sister's rape. And the brothers of Joseph wanted revenge for the favoritism that was happening in their family. And here's, here's at the heart of what I think we have to wrestle with. All of them thought they were serving justice. We're going to make wrong things right. How? With the sword. So I think you have to answer this question. If revenge is really about justice, why is it dysfunctional? Isn't it, we ought to go, we shouldn't be condemning this stuff. We ought to be celebrating. Way to go, brothers. Way to stand for right and justice. Well, here is why, five reasons, why revenge, though tempting, is dysfunctional. Turn with me from Genesis. Well, keep your finger there because we're going to look at it twice. But also go to Romans chapter 12. Because between Romans 12 and 13, we're going to see a few reasons and what we see back in Genesis, why it's dysfunctional. First, Romans chapter 12 and verse 19 says this. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. You see, when, if you take it, you're not leaving room for God to do what God does. Don't take revenge. Leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is, is mine. And who is that? Vengeance is the Lord. So first, and maybe most significant reason, revenge is dysfunctional is because it's taking God's responsibility to repay, to confront unrighteousness, and it's taking it into my own hands. Now, big question here. Does God ever use people for his purposes of bringing forth justice? Yeah, that's what Romans 13 tells us. If you go the end of chapter 12 that we just read and you jump into chapter 13, here's what we read. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do not turn, do not... Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you'll have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what's evil, be afraid, watch, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God, an avenger. Did you see that? An avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So vengeance belongs to whom? Not me, it belongs to the Lord. But he says, I give my sword to whom? Governing authorities to confront evil and wrongdoing. See, God has delegated justice to governing authorities. Don't misunderstand do sometimes they fail miserably at bearing the sword? Absolutely. And that's when we're like, well, if they won't, I will. Right? 
No. As soon as we move from saying, well, because the people who God said are supposed to do it, I'll do it. We are no better than the people who aren't doing it, who God delegated it to. You see what I just said? See, to justify my doing it because those who have been delegated with it don't do it makes me no matter. I'm equally disobedient to the Lord. There's a third, and if you still have your finger in Genesis, you might flip back to Genesis uh, chapter 34, or excuse me, 27 first. When Esau wanted revenge against Jacob, you know what it says? Genesis chapter 34. I said 34, that's the next one. 27, 42, chapter 27, verse 42. Now, when the words of her elder son Esau were reported to Rebekah, she sent and called her younger son Jacob and said to him, behold, your brother Esau is, say it with me out loud, next two words, consoling himself concerning you by planning to kill you. You see, revenge is dysfunctional because it's ultimately not about justice. We might say it's about justice, but it's really about, I'm gonna make myself feel better. And somehow we believe that if you made me suffer, I will feel better if I make you suffer. It's how I console myself. So, We can claim justice, but sometimes that's just a smokescreen to try to make ourselves feel feel better. Now, chapter 34, which I wanted you to look at so badly. (laughs) Genesis 34, this is the occasion of Levi and Simeon taking revenge on Shechem for what they did to their sister. When dad hears about it, here's what he says, verse 30. Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me odious, making me stink among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and my men being few in number. They're gathered together against me and attack me, and I'll be destroyed, I and my household. What's he simply saying? Did they, by bearing the sword and taking revenge, did they end trouble? Did they make things better? No, they didn't solve anything. What'd they do? (laughs) They threw fuel on the flame. See, revenge is dysfunctional because it escalates trouble. It doesn't end trouble. It takes some maturity to go, I might make myself feel better but I'm going to move from a battle to a war if I do this. And then fifth, back to Romans chapter 12. But if your enemy is hungry, don't stab him, feed him. And if he is thirsty, don't chop his head off, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil. Okay, church? Don't don't be overcome by evil. Because other people practice unrighteousness against you and harm you and hurt you. Don't join the game. I know. You 
You and I engage by a different rule. What's the rule by which we engage? We engage by the law of love. We overcome evil with good. So it's dysfunctional because as followers of Jesus, our response is not revenge. It's not to do unto others as they have done unto us. It's to do good and not to do good to people who do good to us. Everybody does that. It's, it's being profoundly, radically different by doing good to people who do bad to us. So, it's clearly dysfunctional. But here's the disconnect. As I came in this morning, I was here over in North, I didn't see anybody bringing their, their sword to church. In fact, how many of you even have one of these? Okay, yeah, there's like four people in South who have one. And I doubt you've ever actually swung it at anybody. If, if you did, we should probably talk later. There's some other issues we have to address. So is this an irrelevant message? Why are we talking about this? Why do I have a sword on stage? Because nobody uses those things anymore, Doug. That's a nice talk, but who cares? Does anybody use these anymore in our world, in terms of our portion of this part of the world? No, not really. I mean, we've upgraded <laughs> to smaller, more effective, that can be concealed. This is just a little obvious when you walk in. <laughs> so yeah, that's why some carry concealed weapons. But look, every single one of us have a concealed weapon that's far more powerful than this or even the upgrade. We all have a far more powerful concealed weapon. <laughs> See, our primary tool of revenge, is it a sword? <laughs> no, take that letter and move it from the beginning and to the end, and what is our concealed weapon? Yeah, it's our words. Probably nobody in here, nobody watching right now has ever walked into their home swinging one of these, but every single person in here has walked in with this flying, and you have created carnage, splattered people over, all over the walls of your apartment or of your home or your dorm room by this concealed weapon. You have chopped them off at the knees, you have pierced them to the heart, to your spouse, to your kids, your boss, right? To a church person. So we might not think this, but this whole wielding of this, very relevant. Very relevant. And folks, it's not a stretch to think this is now this. <laughs> like a club and a sword and a sharp arrow is a man who bears false witness, who tells lies against his neighbor, 
Here's, that, that's New American Standard. Here's the way the New Living Translation says it. Telling lies about others is as harmful as hitting them with an ax, wounding them with a sword, or shooting them with a sharp arrow. Now, have not all of us had our really horrible moment where we have hit with the ax, thrust with the sword, and shot the arrow with this. Yes? Yeah, th- th- there's, there's a reason we followed revenge with the seat. Because if we're going to all walk in the light here. We're going to go, wow, we have used this in some horrible ways. But watch. Proverbs makes it more than just this equals this. It goes a step further. There's a one who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword. That's such a good picture. He's just like, when you, when you are out of control, what are you doing? You just, I'll, I'll hold on tight. <laughs> You're just like jabbing, right? Seeing if you can just stick them. So mad, so frustrated, so angry. But that same that same weapon has great power for good as well. The same weapon that can destroy, can heal. With it, James says, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not be this way. So what's he simply saying? Church, CFC, if you are in Christ, this weapon, this weapon, and all its days of being used to kill and to maim and to hurt, I should be done for. But, but the goal, I hope you'll capture this. The goal in Christ is not to put it away and hang it on a wall. Is it? No, the goal is not to put this away. It's to learn to use it for the good that God gave this powerful weapon for it's to learn to move from cursing with it to blessing with it to to move from rashly damaging to bringing healing to your marriage to your kids to your neighbor see it's it's not to go silent it is intended instead to be redeemed. This is why Jesus says, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. So, church, what fills our heart? Come on, friends. What fills our heart? The Spirit of God, as we have been redeemed, has been poured out into our hearts. The Spirit of God lives in in us, in order that we might become an instrument of other people 
finding more life in Jesus. You see, it's out of the overflow of a transformed heart. This is why, folks, it's not to put the sword back in its sheath. It's to keep it out and to learn to use it for its God-redeemed purpose. The goal is not to shut up. The goal is to build up instead of tear down. You see, how we use our tongues provides clear evidence of where we are spiritually. That might be pretty sobering as you hear that. But the way you and I use our tongues, whether we use it to build up or whether we use it to tear down, is a clear evidence of of where we are spiritually. Why? Because Jesus said it's out of the heart that we speak. So turn to Ephesians now with me. Because we're going to spend the rest of the time in Ephesians 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We, we looked at this, skimmed it last week. Uh, looked at one section a little more closely. But we're going to look at the full power of this concealed weapon that all of us have. Ephesians chapter 4. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification. So this sword that we have is a double-edged sword. It's a sword that can either cut and tear down with unwholesome words. See, it's not, a, it's not words that take a person and make them whole. It's to cut and to destroy or our tongue can swing the other way with edifying words. That's, that's just a church biblical word that means this. Build somebody up. Unwholesome words do what? Cut them down, tear them down, destroy. Edifying words, what do they do? They build up. They establish to bring life and health. And this passage says, first, we're going to look at seven ways that it swings in an unwholesome, a tearing down way that we should stop. All right? Seven types of destroying words. First, laying aside falsehood. It says in verse 25 of Ephesians 4, Lying, and we spent a long time last week, so lies destroyed. Deceit was our dysfunctional practice, but it's not just lying. Verse 31 says, all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Probably not news to you, but let's identify. Here are the seven types of Unwholesome words, lies, bitter words that come from where? Come from where? A bitter heart. See, if, if your words are bitter, don't stop and go, I need to learn to not say such things. You need to go, what's in my heart that allows that bitterness to come out? Harsh words 
harsh. <laughs> what makes words harsh, the content or the tone? <laughs> yeah, it's mostly about the tone, right? See, if somebody doesn't understand your language, you could say really truthful, nice things in a harsh, harsh way. And they would think you were being cruel and cutting them down. It's mostly about our tone. How often have you and I defended ourselves by saying, well, I might not have said it the best way, but it was true. I mean, that's just theoretical. That probably would never happen. <laughs> angry words from an angry heart. And when we're angry, what do, what do we do? When a person is angry, what do they do with their sword? It's just swinging harder and more wildly. Folks, just it's so easy for me. I hope this will help you to just go, when I'm angry, I just let this baby swing wildly with greater force. Quarreling. Just everything's a fight. Everything's a battle. That's clamor in the text, the quarreling. Slanderous and malicious. Don't take, I'm not gonna take a bunch of time unpacking the definition. I think you know. And I think you've had enough experience with this sort to go, ooh, you see yourself here? Some of, some of us are going to find ourselves more attached to one of these swings than others, yes? Here's, here's two important observations about these seven types of unwholesome words. First, a harsh word stirs up anger. Understand why that is so significant. It's so significant because harsh words don't end arguments, remember? Swords don't end arguments. What do they do? They escalate them. Battles turn into war. And harsh words don't end arguments. Harsh words escalate them. When, when you and I get louder and more intense, I think sometimes we think, I'm gonna get louder so this will just stop. <laughs> And I'll just match your volume. It doesn't solve them. Second observation. A bad mood often gives license for hurtful words. Now, you may not use bad mood, but, but the point is this. Sometimes we just go, hey, I, I know I went off, but, you know, I, I just had it up to here. Right, it was just a, it was a hard day, and so you came home swinging and jabbing and thrusting. Anybody who got in your way, it was a bloodbath. Why? Because for whatever, the circumstances in your life, whatever they were, or the fact that somebody did something wrong to you, harmed you in some way, they swung their sword at you, they spoke to you, and you went up. Well, here's what we say. We just take the gloves off, right? We give ourselves license. 
Ever given yourself license? And then in the morning said, you know, everything I said last night, I was way out of line. The problem with giving ourselves license is this. Moods change, hurt remains. Moods change, hurt remains. I, I, this will sound silly, but I genuinely worked hard to go, what can I give you? A four-word phrase that I hope you won't forget that the next time you're about to give yourself license, you're going to say, my mood's going to change. But I could say things that would last for a long, long time. That they're going to carry the wound, the hurt, way longer than I'm going to carry this mood. In fact, by a show of hands, how many of you have had words hurtful words spoken to you that even though it's been weeks or even years, you still feel the wound. Actually, probably almost all of us have had jabs that people have changed their mind. And if you went to them, they go, oh man, I was so out of line. I'm sorry. With the impact still there. So remember, Moods change. What remains? Hurt remains. Marriages, families, parents, don't give yourself in a moment license to hurt for maybe the rest of their life. Moods change. Hurt remains. So, let's just all shut up. Is that the goal? No. No, this is a powerful weapon. Far more powerful than this. Let's not just shut up. Let's learn to put aside those seven dysfunctional practices and let's learn to wield it powerfully for good, for healing, for building up instead of tearing down. So therefore, laying aside all falsehoods, speak Truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So the edifying words begin with truth in the way that the unwholesome words began with lies. We speak truth. But as we took some moments last week to talk about, we speak truth in this way from our passage, Ephesians 4, verse 29. A word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. See, edifying words, building up words, are not just true words. They are true words that are spoken in a controlled, timely, and gracious. That's what they bring, grace. True words spoken and controlled, not wild thrust, but controlled and at the right time. See, some of us need to show up at home or show up at work and go, this is the wrong time to swing the sword.
I, I know you'll wrestle with this, but sometimes, ladies, the first 15 seconds your husband is in the house may not be the time to, welcome home, honey. I've been waiting for you. Because <laughs> that guy may go, hmm, maybe I'll stay at work just a little bit longer. Or the guy who sits in his garage all day makes me wonder, what's happening in the house? Because it's 800 degrees in the garage. <laughs> Might be worse in the house. Now, not picking on you ladies. Guys, there's a time to speak truth, and there's a time to save it. Like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. See, that's, that's beautiful. That is not a, short, a sword that's been sheathed. That is a tongue that is learned. That there is a, a right moment and a right way to speak right things. And, and when, that, when that happens, it's like gold. And when we are recipients of that, watch, when we are recipients of right words at the right time in the right way, it's as building up for the long term as the harsh, malicious words was hurtful for the long term. So by a show of hands, has anybody in here ever experienced Good words spoken at the right time that are like gold to you that still are with you to this day. See, that's the, I wish you could see, that's the beauty of this weapon. That as much as it can wound, it can powerfully heal and restore and strengthen and encourage. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. So it's kind words. True, controlled, timely, gracious, kind words. Tender words, like harsh, more about tone than content. It's not that content doesn't matter, but it's tone. And forgiving. Maybe the three most powerful words this can speak. I forgive you. I wanted to hurt you. And you deserve to be hurt. But I forgive you. So those are three words of gold that could stay with a person the rest of their lives. <clears throat> There's our weapon. Here's how we use it to kill and to destroy and exact our revenge to console ourselves, to make ourselves feel better. And here's how we use them to benefit to build, to help. 
Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul, healing to the bones. That's worthy. That's worthy to treasure in your heart right there. Pleasant words, sweet as honey, to the soul, healing. Mother Teresa might seem like a funny way to end, but here's why I love it. Kind words can be short. They don't have to be paragraphs. Easy to speak. But here, their echoes are truly endless. In other words, kind words will ring a long time in somebody's heart. So don't shut up. Speak up with good words. So take out your phone. Something I've never said, I don't think, in a sermon. Take out your phone, if you would. Some of you may think, oh, I leave it in the car so it doesn't ring. Well, I congratulate you. Sorry, but this is what I'd like for you to do. If you have your phone right now. I'd like you to take three minutes, two minutes. And as the Spirit brings somebody to mind, send them a, a gracious, kind text. Doesn't have to be a paragraph. Just, you really bless me. God has used you in my life. I'm so glad God put you in my life. Something that that the Spirit of God would prompt in you to a person or three or four, because some of you are fast texters. Keep testing, texting as uh, just Matt declares this truth about kindness. And then uh, he'll invite us to stand and declare it together. But keep texting right now.
Stand with me. We declare this. May His goodness and His kindness flow through us. May His kindness, His goodness flow through us, flow through us. His kindness, His goodness. spirit that as instruments of God, that his goodness, that his kindness, that his heart, his tenderness, his forgiveness would flow through us to anybody he has around us. So we can do that. It may seem impossible. We do it because it's him doing it, not us. We surrender ourselves to that. So I hope you have a blessed rest of the day. If you've got questions about the message, remember you can text um, the number that we have on the live stream and Doug will try to answer those in the next few minutes. Or if you're in the room here, you can go back later and and listen to that Q&A. Um, really um, adds to what um, Doug just spoke here as we hear the heart of people asking questions. So I hope you'll take advantage of that, and I hope again that you'll have a blessed day. Thanks for being here. See you next time.